Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Hello, church family. Hope you're ready for the word after all that awesome worship and that time of communion. Today we're going to continue our series on prayer, and we're going to talk about Abraham's intercession before the Lord. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 18. My objective for today is to show the power that the remnant church has to save a whole nation. And some questions you could ask yourself are, Related to Abraham, who's called God's friend. Do you want to be God's friend, or you just want to go to heaven? Are you willing to stand in the gap for the nation? Are you part of the remnant church, or part of the backslidden, half-baked church? You have to ask yourself these questions as I'm sharing. And the introduction for this particular passage is the fact that it was possible, as this narrative displays, for one man to alter the, the, the course of two major cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, just by his prayer of intercession. He didn't have to run for political office. He didn't have to be their king. He didn't have to do anything economically. But because he was God's friend, he could stand before God in prayer and alter their destiny. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be the one that would bless all the families of the earth through his seed, which is Christ. Thus, Abraham, like us, because we're Abraham's seed according to the promise as children of Christ, uh, we should have a burden for the whole world the way Abraham did. So because he didn't live in Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't necessarily have to pray for them or have a burden for them, but he felt responsible for every nation and every community, which is another lesson that we as Christians should have in our hearts through this story. This story also shows us how God confides or at least desires to confide with his people and disclose his plans to us while we're in intercession and while we stand before the Lord. So we're not going to read all of Genesis 18, but let's start with verse 1. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And so he lifted his eyes and he saw three men standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the ground and he said, My Lord. Notice he only addressed them as my Lord, not Lords, in the singular, even though there were three men. If I found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant, but let me give you some water, let me refresh you, etc. And they said, do as you have said. So it seems clear that at least one of these three men, was definitely Jehovah, as we'll find later on, is also a strong inclination that the other two who are noted as angels were also appearances of the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the case for the Trinity, three men known as Lord. And... Um, the word angel just means messenger, so there's different physical constructs 
of these messengers. So it's possible it could have been the angel of the Lord, which is also at times referred to as Jesus or the Lord himself. Okay, now let's go to verse 16. After they had a meal together, after they conversed about giving Sarai her first son through her own womb, which caused her to laugh and get rebuked by God. And uh, Abram was also obviously part of that conversation because that would be his son, meaning Isaac, that would be born at this time next year. So they were about 99 years old around that time. And it says that the Lord began to say to him, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, this is verse 20, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So that's further proof that these two angels were part of the Godhead because the Lord, or Jehovah, was speaking, and he said, I'm going to go down and see if what they have done is true. And then you see two angels go. And even though God said, I'm going to go. And the Bible teaches us that land can cry out. Even in Genesis 4.10, God told Cain that the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It tells us, and I believe it's in Exodus and also Leviticus 25, that the land actually vomits up inhabitants that are committing abomination to God. It tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation is awaiting the manifestation of the fullness of the sons of God for their own liberty. So even the land knows better. The land, the environment cries out, waiting for the church to get its act together. And with all the wickedness, it's the land somehow or another that is crying out. Maybe there's a recording and it gets transmitted to God. Who knows what that means scientifically, technologically, uh, how it happens. But uh, we don't believe rocks are, are living creatures and literally can talk, but somehow the, the rocks and the ground cry out to God. And uh, maybe that's just metaphorical, and, uh, but it does say that the land will vomit out the people who commit abominations. You could see that in Leviticus 18, 24 to 28. So the land has a lot to do with uh, giving God a feedback system and we've even seen in some cases in modern days where revivals have caused the land to be healed and incredible crops coming up, water turning from poison or bitterness to clean water. I've heard reports of that in the Fiji Islands. Uh, there are places in uh, Latin America where there have been revivals uh, where it has affected the ground and caused incredible plump uh, tomatoes and, and fruit to rise up uh, out of the ground. So there's many modern accounts about this. And somehow or another, the ground is affected by how the inhabitants live. God created and designed the earth for us to serve him. And when we go against that, there's a problem. But one day it says the trees of the field will clap their hands. The mountains will rejoice, tells us that in the Psalms. Uh, and, and that has to do with the fact when Christ comes back and rights all wrongs. 
But the point of this story is the ground was crying out. There was a cry from Sodom. God wanted to come down specifically to investigate because something ominous was about to take place that would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they let Abraham know about the looming destruction of Sodom, and that gave him a chance to respond, to intercede. We also see that God personally inspects not only the world, but the church and cities before he acts. In uh, Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see how God, in the, the form of Jesus Christ, God the Son, walks through the midst of the church and examines them and then gives them instruction. Even the purpose of Holy Communion, which our church has every week, is so we could judge ourselves because as God is walking in the midst of the church, he says, if we judge ourselves, he won't judge us. And uh, we find that in the book of Exodus, I believe it is, or it could be Numbers, uh, that the blood of the innocent cries out to God. Right now in this country, we have legalized abortion. The ground is crying out, the blood, not only uh, as we saw the blood of Abel crying out, can you imagine the blood of the 300 to 500,000 babies in the USA crying out, crying out, crying out to God, even now as I'm speaking, the blood of the aborted unborn, those killed through crime, the rampant immorality, racism, materialism, the backslidden church, that also cries out to God. America has been found wanting when it was weighed in the balance. And uh, I believe it's not too late to turn this thing around. God wants to do something very powerful. And so after the Lord began to reveal this uh, to Abraham, he, and he actually said something powerful here in, in Genesis 18, when they were still together before the angels left to investigate Sodom. In verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Why did God choose him? Verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to pass what God has spoken to him. And so they confided in him because he was his friend. They confided in him because he was in covenant with them. But they also confided in Abraham because they knew he would pass his word down to his children so that there would be a generational blessing and outcome. God doesn't waste his time with one generational people who don't care about the future, don't care about their spiritual children, and don't care about their biological children. We're called to pass down our faith, and that's one of the reasons why God invested his time with Abram. He knew that he wouldn't die with Abraham, but his legacy and God's word would continue through his children. And so, they let Abraham know about that looming destruction. Verse 22, then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Wow, powerful. 
He didn't just go about his business, well, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't really care about it. He didn't get along with Lot, his nephew, too much anyway. They even departed ways. They parted ways, we see that in Genesis 14. No, he stood yet before the Lord because he knew it was his obligation to care for his neighbors, to love his neighbors, and to see God move in their communities. And Abraham said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous, and Abraham kept on going down the line. Suppose there's 40 righteous, 30 righteous, 20. He got all the way down to 10, meaning he was negotiating with God. And God kept on saying, well, if I find 50 righteous, I won't destroy it. Or if I find 40, I won't destroy it. Or 30 or 20. Finally, Abraham whittled them down to 10. And God says, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. Now, I don't know why Abraham stopped there. He could have went all the way down to one, perhaps, and maybe God wouldn't have destroyed it, for one. But most likely, he knew that his grace limit was up. God wouldn't budge beyond 10. So then the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And so it's amazing in this narrative how Abraham took it upon himself to reason and negotiate with God. God loves that. Isaiah 43, 26 says, God commands us to put him in remembrance of his word. Let us contend together. He said, state your case that you may be acquitted. God says, let us reason together in another place in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 64. And so uh, Abraham reminded God of his word, negotiated with God. And Abraham's posture for prayer in this particular narrative was based upon the percentage of righteous people or the remnant that was living in the city, which also shows us that God will save a city or a nation from total judgment because of a holy minority. God never depends upon a moral majority, but only needs a holy minority to spare a nation and to bring revival. Unfortunately, God had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because there was only one righteous person there. But he actually spared another city called Zoar, or Zor, for the sake of one person, Lot. He commanded Lot to run there, and he said, hurry up, I can't do anything until you get there, and I'm gonna spare that city. And so, when the two angels, which I believe were God the Son and God the Holy Ghost, in the form of a man, got to Sodom, I'm just going to read chapter 19, verse 12. They saw the incredible wickedness, the sexual immorality, the idolatry, the total uh, uh, anachronistic uh, state of, of rebellion against God. And when they noticed this for themselves, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else living here? Well, we're going to destroy this place, verse 13 because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out to speak to his sons-in-law, said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed with the punishment of the city. Wow. And he lingered, and the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hand of his two daughters. His sons-in-laws evidently didn't follow. And they brought him and put him outside the city, and they, they brought him outside. They said, escape for your life, 
Do not look behind. Do not stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, uh, I don't want to live in a mountain. Please send me to the city. And they said, See, I have favored you concerning this thing. I will not overthrow this city of Zoar. Hurry, escape there, because I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And when the sun had risen upon the earth, when Lot entered Zoar, the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. So you see, the Lord on the earth rained fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. That also shows the Trinity there. That shows that there were at least uh, one Lord on the earth and the other Lord in heaven. Incredible. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew out of the ground. Historical archaeological sites bear witness also to this narrative. Some archaeologists believe that in the area of ancient Sodom, there is a stratum of salt 150 feet thick under Mount Uzdam, and above it a stratum of mall mingled with free sulfur. And at the proper time, God kindled the gases and a great volcanic explosion took place which resulted in the salt and sulfur getting thrown into the heavens red hot. So it did literally rain fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah from heaven. This account also talks about how wife's, uh, Lot's wife looked back, even though she was commanded not to look back. And it says that Lot's wife was encrusted with salt. She turned into a pillar of salt. And amazingly, there are many pillars of salt at the south end of the Dead Sea, which have been born, uh, which have borne the name Lot's wife. Quite amazing. And so as we look at this narrative, we see that God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because of one man's intercession. God will spare our nation. God will spare the nations of the earth and send us a heaven-sent awakening and a revival in the church if we pray in united prayer. I believe the best is yet to come. Do you want God to spare New York? Do you want God to spare the U.S.? Do you want God to spare your communities? Well, I believe post-election there's going to be riots. We could have something close to a civil war if the church doesn't respond and pray and fast because of the turmoil that's looming. And God will allow it to happen as judgment if we don't respond as a holy remnant and pray and cry out to God as never before for this nation. It doesn't matter who gets elected president in a two-party system. It's impossible to completely comport with Christianity and biblical principles. None of the candle candidates are perfect. One might have better policies. The other might have better behavior. But the point is Nobody represents Christianity, only Christ does exactly, and we have to vote kingdom. And irrespective of who gets elected, we're going to have great turmoil if we don't do what God has called us to do. I'm believing, why can't we have great revival in the church and awakening instead of turmoil? Why can't we have God show up and do something he's never done before in this country and change whole cities and bring all these young innocent people who were protesting 
whether they're violent or not, there's a lot of people just caught up in the moment. Why not send a heaven-sent revival that will awaken these people, just like the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s when millions of young people came to Christ? Why not something even greater than that? Why not God revive the church? If not now, not now, then when? And if not through you, then through whom? If not through our church, then what church? Let it start now, let it start through us. Jesus is not coming back for a Christian America, but for a, a church without spot and wrinkling blemish, a glorious church, it tells us in Ephesians 4, uh, 5 rather. And in closing, God unfortunately did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, as we see. It says in Ezekiel 22 that he just looked for one man to stand in the gap so he wouldn't destroy the nation of Israel eventually, which resulted in exile, and he couldn't find enough people to stand in the gap. But it tells us in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, why he destroyed Sodom. He, says, he said, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty or proud and did abomination before me. Abomination could have referred to uh, what Leviticus 18 refers to as abomination related to sexual perversions and sins. And it seems to indicate that in the narrative. So I removed them when I saw it. And so God removed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were proud, haughty, they didn't care for the poor and they were living affluent lives filled with excess, riotous living, with hedonistic, pleasure-seeking goals of their life. And boy, it's nothing different today as we see in this country. Even some Christians are caught up in this materialism. Let's pray, let's fast according to 2 Second Chronicles 7.14, where God promises to heal the land. Will you make a commitment today to make a friendship with God and to delight in him like Abraham was God's friend. This has to start with you giving your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come. Anyone who comes to me, I'll not drive him away. He said, come and dine. He said to the apostles, come and feast with me. If you're hungry, come to Jesus. You're thirsty, only he could fill the deepest needs that you have in your soul. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus wants to come in your life. As many as received him, to them he has given them the right to become children of God who believe in his name and you'll be born from above. You'll have a new life. If you want that new life in Christ, you want to be released unto your purpose, your God-given purpose on the earth. Why don't you pray this prayer with me? Say, Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, come in my life. Take me, I'm yours. Fill me with your spirit so I could follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that prayer, that's only the beginning. That's only a decision. But you have to go from making a decision to becoming a disciple, which means a student of God. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, 
If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. So that in John 8, 31 and 32, you need to continue, not just make a, an emotionally charged decision. And we want to help you. So if you gave your life to Christ, please get in touch with us and we will connect with you and we'll walk you through the next steps necessary for you to be that disciple of Jesus. This is Joseph Matera signing off. Until next week, God bless. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.